Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. The essential question that Stoicism and I think all ancient philosophy was designed to answer was this, how to live. What is the good life? So it seems like a lot of this is how to internally be the hero in your own story. Yes. So often we're not the heroes in our own stories. We're we're, We're the victim most of the time. Yeah, we're the victim because a boss is telling us what to do or somebody's telling us what to do and we think we need to do it so that we can get to a certain point where we could then start being the hero. But you can always be the hero in your story. The reward for success should not be that you don't get to do the thing that you like. Once again, I have Ryan Holiday on the show. Ryan, welcome. Thanks for having me. Ryan, how many times have you been on this podcast? Uh, is this four or five? Could be one or the other. Yeah. So it started as a phone-in. I did a phone-in one, and then I did New York. Uh, it's been a lot. I've so done it all over. I'm sure you've been, you've been on for every one of your books. So trust me, I'm, I'm lying. Yeah. Uh, your growth Hacker Marketing, uh, The Obstacles the Way, which is your book on stoicism, Ego is the enemy, <laughs> which, and by the way, each book is a great book, but each book keeps getting better than the one Thank before you. it. And then you just gave me your next book. I don't, you must write like a book a month or something, but you gave me your next book, Perennial Seller, which I haven't read yet. So th- this podcast won't be about that, which guarantees you're going to be on again. Okay. But what what's this book about? Just tell me, because I know a little. I, I was trying to write a, I think everyone wants to make things that are popular, but they don't think about making things that last over the long term. Like everyone tries to copy what everyone else is doing, but the things that stand the test of time that last um, are usually unique and original in some way. And so, um, like my own books, uh, they sell, they, ha- they didn't sell like crazy when they came out, but they sell 
few thousand copies a week every week which is ultimately what you want as a creative person and like i feel like like so you recently put out a book called the daily stoic yeah and you're very much into the philosophy of stoicism so is tim ferris i think tim might have gotten that from you or vice versa uh and uh stoicism also kind of has it feels like it has its roots or at least a bridge to much of eastern philosophy mm -hmm. almost without the like subtract the let's say meditation or spirituality of buddhism yeah. then you have stoicism kind of this similar ethic to it or aesthetic to it uh so i want to i want to talk about stoicism in a bit but uh i feel like you are very comfortable removing yourself from society in order to write a book like i don't see you try out there trying to run seminars or write an article every day although you do do kind yeah. of like the the email the daily stoic and i feel for myself i have to write all the time or do something all the time or people will forget about me in one day and how do you avoid that and maybe that's my own insecurity or ego how do you like my my insecurity is the enemy how do you avoid that? Well, I think it's no one would forget about you if you stopped writing every day because you didn't used to write every. You used to write like once a week or every, yeah. whenever you had ideas, and your articles were still really popular. So it, I think what happens is you can kind of get into a habit, and then you feel like you have to like keep the machine going. So yeah, I, I feel definitely people feel like that. will be angry or yeah or no. Actually, I feel people like forget about me. Well, I I actually one theory might be, and I, I get this too, is like. Um, as a creative person, there's sort of an insecurity or you need to be like validated for your work, right? So it's like when you're writing every day, you're getting a certain level of validation because you're getting a certain number of emails, a certain number of social media shares, like all these things. So then you know if you went from, if, if you're, you're at this level, you like, it's like you can't reduce the dose, right? Like you can't, Right. It's like you're so like if it's like an addiction, you your your baseline level is like getting higher and higher. You well, know? and it's totally an addiction because whatever neurochemical is firing, yeah. you certainly get addicted to it. Yeah. Like that's why I mean, even like you I see with with little kids, they post on Instagram mm -hmm. and if it doesn't get if their post doesn't get a certain number of likes right. in five minutes, they delete the post. Right. No, like even with my own Instagram, like you start it and you have like zero likes and then your baseline, like on a reasonable post, is like 500 likes, and then let's say it gets to a thousand. You used to be excited by 500, and now you're like, why? Do, and then if you get 500, you're like, why doesn't anyone like my my post? Right. So I think there's part of it is like you feel like you have to keep the validation machine going. But for and, me, and what's funny there is the validation machine is also controlled by. It's a very much a non-choose-yourself philosophy. Yeah, it's like it's, it's some algorithm is deciding. Right, an algorithm which changes all the time. Right. Like, like Facebook, they just changed their algorithm about a month or so ago on personal pages. So you just, unless it's like your, your family right. members, nobody sees your posts. Uh, yeah. You know, so, so, so engagement has gone down severely for most posts. Well, and the Stoics would say, obviously, this would, that would be a bad thing to associate your self-worth with to because it is outside of your control. So, yeah, you you try to be indifferent to those things, although it's very difficult. But, okay, let, let me ask you about that. And I'm sorry if I interrupt yeah. too much, but uh, 
you can't totally be indifferent. No. Like, you, like you look at with like comedy, comedians always say you have to be completely not caring about what people think and you just say the most raw stuff. But at the same time, there's a flip side where you're out there trying to make people laugh. Yeah. Trying to get people to see what you have to say. And, and, and whether or not validation is good or not, part of the goal of expressing yourself is that you want people to read what you're expressing. Yeah, well, what's that line from Henry Ford where he's like, if I listened to what my customers wanted, uh, they'd, they, I'd have given them a faster horse. So it's like, you have to know what they want, but then also know that sometimes what they want isn't, what they want right now isn't what they're going to want in the future. So I think that's where the mastery of the crowd and the audience comes in. There's a line I have, I think it's actually in Perennial, it might be from from Kafka's publisher, and he was saying, like, we both know... is. One of his books had failed, and he'd written this edit- this letter to his editor, and his editor was like consoling him about the failure. And he said something like, "We both know that the best work does not find its echo immediately, or something like that. That like really great work is often not immediately appreciated because it's like hard to understand, or it's like a little, it's a little off-putting, or it's new, or whatever it is, right? And so, um, I think you have to." You have to be attuned to what the crowd or the audience or the what the response is, but if that's all you're thinking about, you're gonna miss the larger point. Well, I, I think also like, I mean, I, I there's so much content out there now, right? That uh, it used to be the case that the only content was put out by five publishers and three broadcasting companies yeah. on television, and maybe one or two radio stations per, per local yeah. area. Now. There's a billion radio stations when you count Spotify and Pandora and all that. There's uh, six million books a year being published or some outrageous number. Now there's no television shows that are really breakout shows because even a show like Mad Men, which people love, is 120th the Nielsen of a sure. Seinfeld. Yeah. So, so there's no more breakouts. Yeah, and I wonder how that changes the nature of how we're going to create content in the future, knowing that you're not going to create, you know, the biggest thing ever. Well, yeah, like it's much harder to be like Harper Lee, where you write like one book and that's your whole life, right? So I, I think to go back to your original question, what I think about it is I think it's a balance. Like you have to make more work than maybe like a previous generation might have been able to get away with, but then also because there's so much stuff out there if you're just phoning it in like everyone else it's not going to like you're not going to be able to break through the noise because you're just adding like another you know another insignificant piece of fuel to the fire so i try to think like i try to think i want to make really good stuff i want to make a lot of stuff i think i write more than most authors uh, and definitely write online more than most people but i'm also trying to make sure that i'm not like i'm trying to give myself time and I think with with like you're saying like courses or seminars and stuff, I guess I, it occurred to me a couple years ago, and I wrote about this a little bit in Ego's Enemy, but it it's like I wanted to be a writer. Like I like writing. That's my favorite thing. And one of the weird things about being successful as a writer is people want you to do a bunch of things that are not writing. That that's really true because you know, and everybody always asks about like you're 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 kind of known initially as at least in my circle as a book marketer, mm-hmm. right? And so I'm sure people come to you all the time. How do I market yeah. my book? And I see the basic problem that people who ask that question a lot have is 
They simply didn't write a great book. They didn't write a book that real marketing will make a sizable difference to. Right, like it doesn't matter how many ads you have or how many email lists you go on or how many reviews you have. You have you have to write a book that not only is someone going to like, but someone's going to share with their totally. friends. And if you can't write a shareable book, then the book is never going to fly. So so most of what it's funny, yeah, most people see like they're like, "Oh, you marketed so and so's book. Can you do that for me?" And most of the time I that book was just so good that I was able to market it. And most of the work my company ends up doing, we just we realized we had to start. My company's called Brass Check. But we just had to start going earlier and earlier in the process. So first we were like, okay, we want to get involved in the editing also. And uh, so we would try to make the book better. And then we're like, actually, it's too far. People aren't even willing to do the work editing. So we got to get involved in the writing phase. And then we're like, actually, the writing phase is is too early. So now we sell like. People were like, I'm thinking about doing a book, and we'll come up with the book with them. We'll sell it to a publisher. We'll write it with them. We'll edit it for them, and then we'll market it because it's the only way that I can find projects that I actually like. When I want, like, if I'm like, hey, James, you should have so and so on your podcast, I want them to be some, I only want to be able, I only want to do that when I'm like, this person's amazing, and you should actually, and I, so I want, I'm like a control freak in that way. So I want to like, I want to I want to guarantee that that's true. Well, and also it's your like again, uh, this is a very common mistake people make. I feel like I feel like we could kind of just go over mistakes people make yeah. when they're building their sure. careers because all careers now are about communication. Yeah. Because you have to basically, you know, I always say ideas are the currency of this century as opposed to let's say degrees or titles or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you have to have a good idea and you have to communicate it and people always say to me um, well, A, people always say to you, how do I market my book when they didn't write a good book? Right. But people always say to me, hey, can um, you introduce me to so-and-so? Right. Uh, it doesn't hurt. They say, Then they say, it doesn't hurt for me to ask. When actually, as we all know, it does hurt very much for them well, to it ask. It hurts you to ask that. It, ha- it hurts it, for you to ask hurt. for the intro. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Like I'm never going to ask the person for the, to, I'm never going to do the intro right. because, why, you know, if it's not a good intro, I'm not going to do it. But then right. I feel bad, right? And then the per- and then I because that person made me feel bad. It did hurt them to right. ask me because now they can never ask me again for anything else. Yeah, there's this great. It's it's not in any of my books, but I love it. There's a, some uh, John Fonte, who's like one of my favorite novelists. John Fonte, one of my favorite. Okay. big big influence on Charles Bukowski. Yes. By the way, we we should just say the history. Nobody would know who John Fonte is if Bukowski uh, didn't write about him, totally. really, because Fonte had already disappeared. And Bukowski just found a copy of it in the Los Angeles Public Library. Ask the dust. Yes. Um, but so, th- I don't know if you know this, but um, John Fonte and H.L. Mencken had a lifelong pen pal relationship. I had no idea. There's a book of their letters that survives. And, uh, and so he would write it. And actually, in Ask the Dust, you know how he writes to some crazy yeah, yeah. person? That's H.L. Mencken, and it's fictionalized based on their actual relationship. So he would write him these letters, and there's this one letter where um, uh, he's like talking to him about you know why he keeps get, his work getting keeps getting rejected. I think, and uh, I might be confusing this, but what I recall is that H.L. Mencken's like editors. You keep submitting them stuff they can't possibly publish. They don't like saying no. So stop giving them stuff that they have to say no to. Do you know what I mean? And I think people, like, I, I love making introductions that the person I'm connecting you, like if someone asked me if you'll introduce me to James, like I would say, of course, if I think you're going to appreciate the introduction, then it's not, I'm not doing 
me, I'm not calling in a favor, I'm doing you a favor. Like if you, if I connect you with someone and you're like, oh, I loved having them on, that's good for me. And so when people ask for like an introduction or a connection, that's only good for them and not for the other person. You're forcing me and then you to say no. Right, and it creates... That, that's why when people say it doesn't hurt to ask, it does it, hurt. It, yeah. it, it hurts them very much. Like they could ruin their career by asking too much. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. And and so I, I forgot what I was saying. Oh, I was saying I think one of the things about mistakes with careers is so you start to write, which is like what I wanted to do. And and I started with books, period, and marketing. So I, I have other stuff that I like, but I really like writing, and that's what I want my life to be. And then you get all these opportunities to do not writing. It's like there's the Mitch Hedberg joke where he says, like, um, you become a comedian and then they want you to act, which is like going to a chef and saying, like, you're really good at cooking, but can you farm? And and so it's you if it just occurred to me, it was like, I want to do writing. Why am I saying yes to all these things that mean I have less time for writing? And so that's that's one of the decisions I've had to make. Is like I know there's things I could do that could make a lot of money. But what I really like is writing, and so that's like that's what I did all this for. So it's like the reward for success should not be that you don't get to do the thing that you like anymore. That's so interesting because you know every I think society in general uh, kind of or much of society equates self worth with net worth. Sure, and yet the entire reason we're sitting here doing a podcast in a studio and we write books is because we're not doing things that would increase our net worth. Sure. Like you would increase your net worth far more if you never wrote another book again. Yeah. <laughs> like you would basically, you you would take the advice that I gave you five years ago, yes. which you've re- re- consistently rejected, which is build an agency and sell it for $10 million and then write your books. And you've just never done it because you stuck to writing books. And you, no, you moved no. out to Austin. You moved from New York City to Austin in a, to a farm Yeah, so you could write books. But that's actually not true because I, I actually I did listen to you at first and it made me super unhappy and it cost me a bunch of friendships. Do you know what I mean? Like, not your fault. I've ruined but, your life, right? in other words. No, no. <laughs> if, I'd, if I'd listened to you unquestionably and then I ignored all the things in my life that were telling me, wait, I don't actually like this, then yeah, I would have. You know what I mean? Like, And, and I, th- I think uh, e- even your advice aside, it's like, there's so many easier ways to make, and there's so many easier ways to make money than writing things. Do you know what I mean? Like everything is easier yeah. than writing. Writing is like I'm jealous of the people who don't write actually, sure, because they get to, I don't know, they just start making business deals around ten in the morning, yeah, and you know that's hard too, and I have a lot of respect for that, but that is so much more lucrative than trying to. Um, tear your soul apart and put words on a page that most people will never read and yeah. you won't make any money off of because because the the i don't know if this is a correct formula but the dollar per word you write has gone consistently down over the past 20 years there's like one writer in history who's a billionaire do you know what i mean like yeah there, like jk Rowling. yeah there's one and yeah. she's like she, i mean that's in, that, that's the exception that proves the rule, right? right. Um, there's one writer that's a billionaire, and think about how many people have been writers. And think, I mean, like Shakespeare wasn't a billionaire, you know, like the greatest writers who ever lived. Well, and also most writers that we know about died penniless. Like look at Herman yeah. Melville. Mm-hmm. Look at I don't know Kafka. Look at the writers who I I could 
I can't think of any profession where I could like name so many suicides yes. as much as writing. Like I remember there was one point I read like five or six writers in a row and they were all like friends with each other and the books were so brilliant. And I'm like, why don't I really hear about these writers more often? And then I kind of looked up all their bios in Wikipedia, all of them killed themselves. <laughs> well, and and look, I think I I think a lot of that is unnecessary and self-inflicted, right? Like I think course, yes. Like uh, Jeff Goins, uh, do you know Jeff Goins? Yeah, yeah. He has a book coming out called Real Artists Don't Starve, which I love. And his point is that Michelangelo pretended to be this uh, um, like starving artist when he was really like the richest person in the, all the Renaissance. So there's part of it that's like the myth. And then I think part of it attracts like self-destructive people and all of that. So I don't think, I think a lot of writers could, and artists could be more successful than they are if they sort of did the choose yourself thing and they got their act together and they thought about this as a business and they weren't so in love with like the glamour of it. But um, there's just easier ways to make money and live your life than being a writer. A writer. You're a writer for some other deeper reason. And, and if you're like, for instance, like a lot of people have said to me that I should do a podcast because like I like listening to podcasts. You know uh, many people, I, you get I, great guests. Yeah, I could get could get all and and three or four years ago, this is when this started happening. And so I probably I would I don't want to sound uh conceited about, it, but I imagine it could be a successful podcast. Mm. But like I didn't I didn't become a writer because I love books so I could have a part-time radio job. You know what I mean? Like I even ha have had to start thinking about like saying no to being on more podcasts because it was like, wait, like every hour that I spend doing that is a time is time that I don't get for me and the the work that I have to do, which is by the way, really hard. And I think people, what people miss is like, as a writer, you're always looking for an excuse not to write. Do you know what I mean? Like it's so unpleasant a lot of the times. That well, you're looking. You're looking for. An, you're doing two things. You're looking for an excuse not to write, which obviously a podcast. Yeah, I've got to prepare for a podcast, so I can't yeah. write. But also as a writer, everything becomes material. Yeah. So I was watching um, actually Crashing on HBO, which yeah. which is about Pete Holmes. It's a great show. And, and he's talking to T.J. Miller, and he's kind of they're arguing life philosophies and Pete Holmes says to T.J. Miller, don't you ever want to go uh, camping? And T.J. Miller, of course, is plays Ehrlich Bachman in, in Sil Silicon yeah. Valley. He's this very kind of brash, almost obnoxious guy. And T.J. Miller sort of scoffs and says, camping, the only reason I would go camping is to come up with like comic material about why one shouldn't go camping. <laughs> right. So like everything is material. Yeah. Yeah, so and and so if you're if you get too busy, you lose the thing that makes the other thing work. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like if you get too caught up with speaking or I, I don't know. I, I guess I guess my thinking is like you can always do those other things. You can't always be in your creative prime or you can't like it's Stephen Pressfield talks about the resistance. I think the more successful you get in a weird way, the more seductive resistance is because like you're not procrastinating to watch television. You're procrastinating because you're at South by Southwest for nine days and then you're procrastinating because you got paid to go speak at this event and then you're launching this course which takes three hours you know like you're you can get you can do all these things that take you away from the one thing that you wanted to do and then the weird thing that i've noticed that actually was really gratifying and helpful for me and i bet you get this too is like i've met a lot of really like powerful people you know like wealthy people um famous people 
and like what they all seem to what they all secretly talk to me about is how they want to write a book and how they want it to be like a successful book and then it's like why would i go try to do what they're doing if it just circles back to what i'm already doing but i guess that's that there's that classic story of the guy who um fishes in his village and the mba comes and says uh man your your fishing is so profitable We'll, we'll we'll build it up We'll hire a billion people. We'll take you public. You'll get rich. Yes. Uh, and the guy says, "Well, then what I would, you know, then I would do." And and the, the MBA says, "Well, then you could do whatever you want." And the guy says, "Well, I would just fish every day then. Yeah. And I'm already doing that." And you know that like that's like a very. I was just reading about this. That's like this uh, almost like forwarded email cliche kind of like internet yeah. thing. But it's actually that story dates back to like the 14th century, and it's some story. It's from some Christian monk. And uh, it, it was supposedly an exchange between a king and one of his advisors. And like things are good. And he's trying to build up the army to invade this country, to then invade this country, to then own this part of the continent. So then they can sit there in peace. Like they're experiencing peace and he wants to go to war so he can experience peace. So it's like, it's this timeless story that you want this thing. And as you, as soon as you have that thing, you come up with ways to not have that thing. And you lie to yourself by telling yourself that it will get you that thing again. It's, it's so interesting because, okay, there's a couple of things to unpack there, but first off, why were you researching that story? I wasn't, I was, I, like, I'd heard that story. I thought it was really interesting. And, uh, and then I was reading this book of meditations by a Christian monk whose name I'm forgetting. And he has that, and, and he had that exact story, like the exact same thing. And I was like, how could, and I was looking at the date of when the book, and he was like from the 14th century. I was like, I I love finding connections between like history and current events. So I love that there's that story about the fishermen in Thailand and we think it's so smart and wise, but really the only reason we think it's profound and wise is because it's 800 years old or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, the best stories kind of have resonated through time. Mm-hmm. Stephen Pressfield talks yeah. about this too in in kind of his his least known book, The Authentic Swing. Yes. How basically he the you know he wrote the Legend of Bagger Vance, which is about a, a, a golf pro in, in in the 1920s, and he basically says it's almost word for word the Bhagavad Gita written 2,500 years ago in India. Mm-hmm. But if a, but that's almost like you take these stories that are hundreds or thousands of years old, and it just goes to show you that civilization has focus grouped that story yes. to, to basically say, yes, this is a story that millions or billions of people will love. So if you can write something that's a mirror of that story in modern times, people will probably love that as well. And And a great example is, when the Fugees, the rap group, did the song "Staying Alive" from the Bee Gees, it was a big hit. Like, there's yeah. no way it could not be a bit. You could do, sure. you could just take "Staying Alive" and put a reggae beat to it, and do, and then auto tune your voice, and it's going to be a big hit. <laughs> well, think about my my books, right? My uh, I could I could have tried to come up with some comprehensive philosophy of the universe, and maybe I would have been right, and maybe it would have worked, or. I what I did instead was someone introduced me to this 2,000-year-old philosophy called Stoicism, which millions of people and some of the most successful people in history have used. Um, and I could say, I'm going to make this more accessible to a wider audience. Like um, One is, I mean, I mean, you could argue maybe one is more creative than the other, but I took I, what I loved from that is that 
I'm channeling something that, yeah, as you said, it's been fo- focus group by history, by generations of people, and you know that it works. You know what I mean? Like, you you know you have real define, evidence. Define works. Define, you know, and even though we've, we've done a podcast about, about stoicism, I would have to say it's only in the past couple of months that I've actually been actively interested in it. Yeah. I kind of have a more, um, I don't want to say Eastern philosophy bent, but... I I don't know. I read a lot a lot of different philosophies and uh, but stoicism now I'm starting to appreciate all the connections between both east and west and d- describe it for a second and what do you, and define what you mean by it works. Well so so stoicism is a is what you would call a practical philosophy. So it's not uh these like arcane questions about like does man even exist? You right. know, is this free will real or not? Um it's practical philosophy. It was designed by the Greeks and then sort of popularized by the Romans and it's it's a it's sort of basically at its core it just says you don't control the world around you you control how you respond to the world around you and it's uh it's saying that um you know it, it's sort of stressing like duty and discipline and self-control and um and it's sort of interconnectedness so it's it's a it's a practical philosophy but it's if you think about think about the two most prominent practitioners of stoicism you have Marcus Aurelius, who's the emperor of Rome, so the most powerful man in the world. And then he, his favorite Stoic was Epictetus, who was a slave who had actually been banished from Rome by a previous emperor. So it's, it, when I say it works, it's like just the fact that like you have extreme wealth and power and they're using the philosophy and it's helping them. And then you have extreme adversity and difficulty and powerlessness and they're taking advantage of the philosophy and it's helping them. To me, that's working. But I guess, I guess what I mean is like, it's, it's, not, it's not as if it's like I came up with some thing and then hopefully it will help people in the future. It's like, you know, James Stockdale is parachuting in to uh, be taken prisoner in Vietnam and he's saying to himself, like, this is where stoicism kicks in. You know, like, and then he used it. He, he thought how, about how it. How did he use it? Well, so um, he, he actually says to himself, I'm entering the world of Epictetus as he's in, because he's going to be held captive. He's going to experience torture. And he's going to have to focus entirely on the fact that almost nothing around him is in his control. But all he controls is what is, what is this experience going to mean? He said, I never lost... He said, I never lost my sense of control over the ending of the story and that if I survived, I could make it like the most powerful, important thing that ever happened to me. I, I don't understand that sentence. I, I, uh, I'm i in control of the ending of the story. Okay, so uh, let's say um, he's in there. He doesn't control whether he's in there for five years or whether he's in there for 50 years, but he controls if he does get out um, how he's going to have acted in that camp, right? He's or he's gonna he's gonna decide whether he's bitter by the made bitter by the experience or whether he saw it as an opportunity to lead. Um, so one of the things that he did in 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 the Korean War, there'd actually been a, a massive problem of how prisoners of war acted. It basically became like Lord of the Flies in these prison camps. Like all, although these, all these people were in the same military force, like there was a lot of trading and and like favor trading and prisoners sort of ganged up on it they, they did not act as some sort of cohesive unit and and as stockdale went into this camp he knew 
that he was the highest ranking prisoner of war taken in Vietnam to date. And um, he said to himself, like, so I, it's my, I, he didn't say, oh, it's so bad I'm being taken prisoner. He said, now it's my opportunity to be a leader, right? So he said, he controls the, the end of the story in that although he doesn't want to be there and he shouldn't be there and it's horrible what he's going to undergo, he does choose what the experience is going to mean to him. That's so, the sort of the ultimate power. So it seems like a lot of this is sort of like how to internally be the hero in your own story. Yes. So often we're not the heroes in our own stories. We're we're, we're, we're the victim we're, most of the time. Yeah, we're the victim yeah. because a boss is telling us what to do or somebody's telling us what to do and we think we need to do it so that we can get to a certain point yeah. where we could then start being the hero. Yeah. But, but you can always be the hero in your story. Right, thing, so you got this horrible boss and they're making you do all these things and one version would be like, they're doing this to me, it's very unfair, but one day I'm going to be the boss and I'm going to get even, right? That would be like sort of a victim's version. The stoic mentality might be, this is a horrible boss and I'm going to study how not to be a horrible boss until I have, until I see an opportunity for me to get out of this environment and then I'm going to, um, uh, I'm going to be much better than this, right? Or I'm not going to do to other people what this person is doing to me. So it's a, it's sort of it's seizing on whatever power you have in that situation and taking advantage of that. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over a hundred or two hundred different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I love. I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house. I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Looking for a rewarding, life-changing opportunity that enhances the lives of children in your community? Well, with almost 50 years of experience, Huntington Learning Center is the nation's leading K-12 
K through 12 tutoring and test prep franchise dedicated to shaping brighter futures for both students and franchisees. Huntington is the top revenue producing supplemental education franchise in the U.S. and their proven system is the key to success for you and your students. The Huntington Advantage includes low startup cost turnkey systems, dedicated support teams, national and local marketing support, and multiple revenue streams to help you build a life-enriching and profitable business. No education experience needed. In today's environment, the need for tutoring has never been greater. When you become part of Huntington Learning Center, you're filling an urgent need in the growing $5 billion supplemental education industry. To learn more, visit HuntingtonFranchise.com. Make a meaningful difference, pursue your dreams of business ownership, and be a positive force in your community. Don't wait. Visit HuntingtonFranchise.com today. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely got to use HIMS from now Not on. Not that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at HIMSS.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? HIMSS.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs HIMS. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. HIMS.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See HIMS.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Every podcast I do is so personal and special to me. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Please take a moment to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It will only take you a second, but it will help other people discover the podcast. And my goal is to share this great content with as many people as possible. To see the show notes, just head on over to jamesaltature.com slash podcast. While you are there, you can join my free insiders list to get notified when I post a new podcast. Every day, I also share my best and most controversial ideas. You won't get this stuff anywhere else. Thanks again. I really appreciate you guys. If I was going to summarize it in some kind of one word 
bullets. There's uh, in- integrity, mm-hmm. kind of like a, a universal integrity, yes. like all the time. Integrity to what you want, integrity to others, and so on. Like never, never lying to manipulate, for instance. Yes. Um, and then another thing might be uh, there's nothing worth regretting because mm-hmm. I have this. I only have this one moment to to sort of. Uh, infused with my life. Like, the, the Stoics call that amor fati, which mm-hmm. in Latin just means a love of fate. So you're just supposed to love everything that happens, even even the horrible things. Like um, you are supposed to even like look forward to the bad things because they were made just for you. And, and, and then it seems like there's a notion of fairness mm-hmm. uh, uh, so that you're as fair as possible to the people around you. You, you help the people around you even if it might... Uh, temporarily, uh, let's say, hurt yourself. If you could, if you could help someone more than you're hurt, mm-hmm. then try to do it as part of this being this hero. Uh-huh. Um, what are some other one-word ways to describe this? I would say sort of like temperance, right? So sort of not uh, not being like it's not that not being an addict to to some anything. Other force. Yes. So so it's about self-control in that sense. Um, you know, sort of moderation is probably a big one. Um, perseverance would be another one. You know, it's. I think they were very. Look, there's a philosophy design in the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Things are bad, right? Um, and accepting that you know life is not always pretty. That horrible things happen. Um, that you know, uh, I heard. Uh, I heard a great quote the other day from uh, some Roman poet who was saying like, "Life is one long struggle in the dark." I think there's a part of that to stoicism. It's like, look, life is brutal. Like people die, you know, people do bad things to each other. They're not the stoic is not caught by surprise when Donald Trump is elected president. You know what I mean? Not not to make a political statement, but it's like so many people are like, how could this happen? You know, like so many people that get depressed, like their happiness gets affected because, by these external events. Yeah, well, but also like we have this like so the stoic has this sense of fairness for how they behave. But you can't, I think, and I work on this, you can't project that fairness out onto the world and then be disappointed when other people are not fair. Like, like if you're someone who loves justice, and I, I think justice is important and I want thing, I want people to get, you know, like I want I like karma and I love all that stuff. But if you go around expecting the world to act along those lines, you're gonna have your heart broken all the time. Well, well, so this gets back again to being a creative and an artist and and to some extent choosing yourself which which you have very much done uh in in your different career choices you still to to have some degree of success you still want to be heard you still yeah. want to say something that's heard kafka would get disappointed if he yes. read a book and no one would read it until yes. after he died what's or nobody read moby dick until after Herman melville died yeah. so you still want to be well, john, john kennedy tool kills himself Right. Because his book is rejected and he doesn't, there's something uh, uh, that's so sad to me because it's like, then the book won the Pulitzer Prize and uh, the book didn't change. You know right. what I mean? So it's like you have to, there, you have to, the, wor- the world will break your heart if you think it's going to treat you fairly and that good is going to prevail over evil all the time. So, so how do you though, given that we still want people to like us, it's just this yeah. normal thing. Yeah. How do you persevere in art and creativity? Like what's, what's the, te- and, or what if you're unhappy at your job uh, and, and you want to do something that's, that's, that's expressive that people appreciate you for, 
uh, you know, everybody goes around saying, uh, I have to find my passion and pursuit. Now we know, or we think that, that maybe there's no answer to that. They just have to keep persevering and trying yeah. different things, but you still want that kind of someone else to say, I like you. Yeah. And, yeah, and yeah. that seems anti-stoic. It, it is. I think you have to find people who can be a proxy of the crowd, right? So the crowd is inherently fickle and, um, you know, it's out there and there's lots of them and they can be, you know, it's like, it's funny. It's like people go like, oh, you know, all these idiots voted for Donald Trump, let's say. And then they're like, I want those idiots to like me. You know, like it, yeah. Mark Surrealis has this line. He's like, we care about our own opinion more than other people, but yet we chase other people's approval constantly. And not only do we chase other people's approval, we we don't chase our friends' approval, we chase strangers' approval. Yes. So for instance, I'm always very happy if I write something, and, and I know you're happy if you write something and I write to you and say, hey, I like that. Or if you write yes. to me and you say you like something, right. But I'm exceptionally happy when complete strangers Right, you <laughs> actually care more, did it get a million views or not. Right. But so I, I think a lot about that is, is I go, that's how I try to judge the success of my stuff. Like, did successful people who I admire get something did they say so i'm trying to shrink the amount of people whose opinion i care whose approval matters to me do you know what i mean i i very much know what you mean because i think about this all the time and i think that's a personal challenge mm -hmm. like you know particularly it's it's really important in today's world and and the greatest examples are media but you can always apply that to any aspect of life but you know, Mad Men, I'll, I'll get back to the TV show Mad Men. Mad Men goes for a specific small audience. Yes. I think the average person who loves Mad Men loves it a lot. Yes. Whereas the average person who loves Seinfeld loves it also, but not as much as the average person who loves Mad Men. And Mad Men is a much smaller audience. Yes. But it's captured this cultural imagination in a different way than Seinfeld did. And I think he worked on that script for like seven years, right? So what keeps what keeps Matthew Weiner going for those seven years. It was, it must have been that the people he was working with at HBO, because he worked on The Sopranos, Sopranos, and it must have been, who did The Sopranos? David um, Chase. David Chase must have seen something in Mad Men and said, you should keep going, that's good, you know what I mean? Or, or some trusted friend or colleague or family member. You know, you have to have that to keep you going. Well, so this, this brings me, this segues directly into another topic that you and I have briefly discussed over email years ago, I wrote an article um, uh, several years ago called Who Is In Your Scene or Who Is Your Scene? Yes. And it's basically about how every artistic movement, every technological movement, basically every group of successful people is just that, a group. Yes. Like they all kind of grow up together. Like Andy Warhol and Roy, Lichten Roy Lichtenstein bounced ideas off of each other. Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, and William S. Burroughs bounced off ideas off each other. Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak, Bill Gates, and Paul Allen, and a dozen other people bounced ideas off of each other. And then together as a group, they became highly competitive billionaires yeah. who maybe hated each other, but they really kind of grew up as a, as a yeah. scene and not as pure competitors like we might think. Like, like we don't, Steve Jobs wasn't this independent guy who stole everything and yeah. cheated his way to the top. He worked with a group of people yeah. who, and they all grew up together. And I feel like many ways, you like you know, 
your stuff, my stuff, many of the people we know, we're all kind of growing up, hopefully, as a, as a scene. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like critical to success. Yeah. And at the same time, there's still the myth of kind of the independent artist and hero and, and so on. Well, so to connect back to what we were just talking about, so I, I, I love that's like one of my favorite articles that you've ever written. And I used it in an entry in the Daily Stoic, like maybe, maybe like March. 7th, March 8th or whatever, because there's one every day. And then I got an email uh, on that day from a U.S. senator who'd read, who reads the Daily Stoic every day, and he was like, I really like today's entry. It's like exactly what I try to think about like for my office. I won't say who it is, but that's what I'm talking about where it's like, okay, if that, if that thing had gone viral and done like 10 million views on Facebook or something, that would have meant something to me. But what to me, as a writer, what's validating and what's important is like somebody who's in a real position of power or influence said, not said that it was good, but they, they, I know, I now have confirmation that they read it and it held true in their experience. So I'm trying to think less like, is what I is what I'm writing popular or is what I'm doing like getting lots of validation, or I'm more thinking like, is it being proven right? That's how I'm trying. Does that make sense? Yeah, like, and I think I think entrepreneurs need to realize not everyone's going to create a Facebook that 1.6 billion people will use. Right. But if you can profitably, I don't know, deliver local produce to a thousand of your neighbors and make a profit on each one, that might be a good business that supports you for the rest of your life. Yeah. And sometimes you just need kind of that core group to love what you're doing. Yes. And, and that provides the purpose in your life. So, so, and I see this with all sorts of creative people. I, I think that you, you want to have your scene. Actually, I'll, I'll give you two examples of where I think people violate the scene thing. So people will go like, oh, I wrote a book or I made a, an app about this. And, I'll, and then they'll go like, how can I find like, they're like, will you help me market it? And then I'll say like, you know, who do you want? Like, what are the big outlets like in this space or something? And they'll be like, I don't know. I thought that's like your job or something. And I'll I'll go, you just spent like a year writing this book about this topic and you don't know the scene. That's really scary. Like it's probably not good. So it's it's not only the question is who is in your scene. You have to know the scene. You have to know the scene. Like, like, um, yeah, it'd be like if Brian Koppelman, who we both know, wrote rounders but he didn't actually know anything about poker or know all the people who are tastemakers in the poker that movie wouldn't have been successful and it wouldn't have been good you know so so people don't know their scene in in that sense like they don't know like they don't actually know the movers and shakers they just think like they can just you know be so i think that's that's a big problem and then and then yeah people people don't know who they're competing with so like you want to know your scene so you know who to compare yourself to. It's like, imagine if like an opera singer was comparing themselves against a rock star and judging whether they're like, they're like, oh, but you know, when, when the members of One Direction go check into a hotel, everyone, you know, mobs them at the front desk. Why doesn't that happen for me? It's like, so now you're going to, instead of, you're, you're, you should be comparing yourself against other opera singers. And so I think about that. It's like, I, if, if what's important to me is writing and I want to be a great writer, I need to make sure that that's what I'm measuring the success or failure of my work against. I can't be like, but Mark Zuckerberg is a billionaire and we're the same age, you know, because I'm comparing apples and oranges. So, so how old are you right now? I'm going to turn 30 this year. Going to turn 30. So I sort of feel like, 
and and you've been kind of going on this path for several years. Like you you left New York, you you left this idea of trying to run a a big agency. Although you know you still have your yeah. outlets for business and making money, but how how does somebody kind of realize what their internal truths are in a way that I feel like you have? Like you you have kind of at the top of the pyramid. Okay, I'm going to be a writer, but that hasn't stopped you from. You know, like you said, you help other people with their book projects. Yeah. You do some agency stuff, but not so much that it distracts you from living here on a farm. Yeah, and, like and the writing. farm thing's important to me. Having a family is important. So but how yeah. do you? I think most people. I feel like I didn't know how to do that until my forties. Like well, I was <laughs> stuck in my at thirty. I was, I was just a basket case. Uh, so I, I don't know. Um, I don't, and I don't know how well I actually have it figured out. But I would say that. I think about it a lot. Like I think that's I think people like yeah. people don't think about it. They just magically true. hope it gets aligned. So I think that's part of it. And then one of the things that I've tried to that that is helpful for me is um like what is a what is like an ideal day of your life look like? You know? And I don't think people have a great answer. So so it's like one good test is like if you know what an ideal day of your life is then it's easier to say no to things that don't fit in that ideal But how day. do people even know? Like, for instance, if I ask a random person, and maybe this is not true, but I think if I ask a random person, what's your ideal day like? They're just like, oh, I'm at the beach and I'm drinking all day <laughs> right. and there's right. lots of... Or, or they're like, oh, I don't know. I haven't thought about it. <laughs> but it occurred to me at one point, like, um, I, was, I wasn't living in Austin. I was doing some business thing, but um, I was out of town. And at, sometimes out of town is, like, clarifying for me because, like, a lot of your bullshit isn't there. But it was like, I'd woken up, I'd worked out, I'd eaten somewhere that I, I'd had, like, a relaxing, like, come coming together morning. I, I went into my office. There was no one there. So it was really quiet. I sat down. I wrote for, like, a couple hours. And then I was going to go see a friend for dinner or something. And I was like, and it was a Saturday. And I was like, this Saturday is what my life is should be like this is when I'm happy, this is what I want my life to be all the time. So so someone's let's say someone's listening to this and they're commuting to work at their job in a cubicle or Procter and Gamble. Nothing wrong with Procter and Gamble yeah. or a cubicle job or a commute, but they're listening to this and they're saying, Oh, well it's easy for him to say I have you know, they're saying to themselves, I have five kids and I'm supporting a, an ex spouse yeah. and um uh, how can I start moving in that direction? What what's the answer? Um, yeah, so so I uh, actually I'll give you what. L- let me go back and give you one other example where it hit me where I was like, so I was I was also out of town and like so like let's say today I drove here to meet you. I'm like driving. I'm like checking my watch constantly. Like I'm not going to be on time. You know, it's like driving is stressful. I'm like looking at the gas gauge. I'm looking at how many miles are on my car. I'm all these things. And then it occurred to me once I was driving in L.A. where I'd recently lived. So I'd. I'd come back there and I was driving in a rental car and I was like, this is so much better. It was like, I didn't care about, you know, it's like, it's not my car. I have no schedule where I have to be. I was like way happier. I was like, this is what driving should feel like all the time, like without any of the encumbrances. And, but I'm not saying that that's what I'm, that, that, so I should just not give a shit about my car and I should be late all the time. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying I should live in some fantasy world, but I'm, I'm trying to compare like how things are when I'm just sort of going through the motions or live like saying yes, to, like when I'm being sort of kicked around by the universe 
And then like, what does it look like when everything goes my way, when it's all green lights, you know, and then I'm, how can I get closer to that thing? So, so, so direction as opposed to, let's say disappointment is, yeah. is, is the first thing, you yeah. know, awareness first, yes. right? And then kind of, okay, I'm, I'm a little disappointed that I'm not in my ideal day, but I can start to figure out how to move into the direction of my ideal day. Like when you put on a, what would Jesus do bracelet, you don't become Jesus. You're supposed to think when you have individual decisions, like what would Jesus do in this situation? So it's like, I'm not saying it's like my dream, my ideal day is me on a beach not working. So you should quit your job at Proc- Procter and Gamble, but you should go. I like when my coworkers ask me to do their job for them, I say yes because I don't want to confront people. Or you know, like mm-hmm. I I spend too much time in pointless meetings. Or you know, I eat at the same crappy lunch place every day and I feel sick afterwards. Like so, it's like what are the in start thinking of the individual things in that day that are not part of the ideal day and begin to just begin by removing all the extraneous obligations and crap that you don't like and start start like I'll give you a I I realize with my business the the thing I hate the most is when someone says hey I want you to work on this project and then they want expect me to pitch them so then I have to do a bunch of I have to not be writing and then I have to think about their project and then I have to come up with ideas. Then I have to pitch, then we have to talk on the phone. So I have to interrupt my idea, my day or we have to go to a meeting. And then then they, maybe they're like, put together a proposal. And so I'm doing a bunch of shit and then they go, um, okay, fine, I'll hire you. And then only then do they see that the clock has started. That I So now it's like I did all this free shit and now I have to wow them because they're paying me. I just realized that that was making me deeply upset and miserable and I hated it and, and I was spending a lot of time doing unpaid work to get paid work. So I just decided that the only way I'm going to run my business is like if you want to hi- like hire my company, you have to buy an hour of my time. So you have, like, if you're like, I'm doing a session with an author today. Um, he wants me to market his book. He bought an hour of my time for $1,000 and I'm going to talk him through what I would do if he hires me and how, and, and I'll give him all my best ideas. I'll be excited to work on the project. I'll do all this stuff. And then if he's like, I want you, I want to do this with you, then the money will just count to whatever I ultimately charge. So, so it's interesting because it's a related to again this internal code mm-hmm. of like I've got to value uh, who I am and my time and not fall victim to someone else's agenda. Yeah. And B, people are willing to do this with you because you've spent the past ten years building up a body of work. But it's not like it, it's not like you were you were disappointed for ten years and now you could do this. You had yeah. small successes along the way. You sure. wrote several books. You, it didn't you start did at a thousand dollars either. You know, it, right. like I, the rate has gone up as as many people have been satisfied with it. I think I think the key there though is the the direction has small successes yes, along the way that you totally. can celebrate. Yes, absolutely. And and it it I used to have to do lot spend lots of time on the phone, and I was really on unha- you know like so I came up with this idea of not just as a it was it's business and personal. It's like if I come up with this policy, seventy percent of the prospective clients that are going to want to work with me are going to say no, I'm not going to do that, right. and so I'm just not going to talk to them. Like, I'm not going to be mean about it, but like it's going to dramatically, if I spend 70% less time on the phone, I'm way happier. 
So I'm doing the things that, and then the right. 30%, I am, so it's, it's, it's not eliminating, I don't like being on the phone, period, even when I'm paid for it. But, so I'm not, I'm not living in some fantasy world where I don't work or make money, but I'm, I'm trying to strike the perfect balance between what most people's life is like and what my ideal life is like. So, so, but you've, you, I've seen it, you've really made a concerted effort to kind of transform your life so you can do this. I mean, yeah. you, you, you lived in expensive Manhattan and, and expensive LA uh, in your prior lives. Yeah. And now you live in a farm 20 minutes outside of Austin with sheep where I imagine- No sheep, no sheep. No, no sheep, pigs, what, what do you got there? Goats, donkeys, <laughs> and cows. So, so, but I imagine also it's much yeah. cheaper. Yeah. You live in a bigger place and it's much cheaper than living in a studio in Manhattan. My studio apartment rent is what my mortgage on a 20 acre farm is. That's unbelievable. So, yeah. but, so, but you've been able to create this life where yeah. you're able to say no. Yeah. You kind of have to, it's not enough to know that you can say no. You kind of have to create the life that allows you to say no. Yeah. Right. Like, uh, I mean, you wrote a book about the power of no. Everyone has the power to say no. The problem is we don't use the power and we don't want to. And it's, we're, I think we're scared of it. And so, I, look, the, the best decision I made was to move to Texas because I don't have to say no as often because I just get invited and asked to do less stuff. Right. You know what I mean? Because you're like far away. Right. <laughs> like, like I, no one's asking me to come. But get, does that make you feel bad? You want people to ask you every day to do stuff? Like what disappoints you right now in career where you know you shouldn't be disappointed? No, no, that's a, that's a great question. There's definitely a part of that. If I'm being honest, like you still want to be asked, but I also know if I am asked, I'll say yes, right? Because I want it. So uh, I think I would say a disappointment in my career is that I've sold a lot of books. They've done very well for some really successful people, but you're and this might be a complaint that all writers, you still never feel like you're part of the club. You know, that's really true. Like, but I wonder if that's, uh, so, so often I feel that way about either writing or podcast. Or, so the only two things I enjoy yeah. doing career-wise are writing and podcast. Mm -hmm. And I know for you it's writing. Yeah. But at the same time, again, that's the top of the pyramid. Like yeah. I run an entire business right. underneath. I run several businesses underneath this. You run stuff, but like, my employees are in Denver. They live 2,000 miles away from me. You know, so I'm able to set up my life in such a way that uh, the business doesn't override yeah. the things that I love doing. Mm -hmm. But, you know, at the same time, uh, you know, you, you can't just, you know, you can't all the time just do what you love doing. Of course. No, of course not. You have, somebody has to do the dishes and, you know, like there's all sorts of shit in life that you have to do that you don't want to do. I think that, like, you know, Tim Ferriss has the four-hour work week, and I think people have missed the point. It's like, he's trying to say, like, can you have four hours of work you don't like doing a week? So, 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 but that, but Tim's a great point about the club, okay? I think Tim, and let's say the authors of Freakonomics and Malcolm Gladwell, and maybe, I don't know how you say your name, Brene Brown, yeah. Brene Brown, you know, these people, they published between 2000 and 2010, when I think there were still breakout books that would sell 4 million copies in kind of the yeah. personal improvement space. And and you are probably addressed this somewhat in your next book, Perennial Seller, uh, we'll, we'll talk about it on our next podcast, but I don't think breakouts happen in the same way anymore. 
because there's so much content out there and there's so much mimicking. Mm -hmm. And I have nothing against that. It's just, it's a different environment now for media consumption. Well, it's more, it's, it's, um, I think Peter Thiel talked about it on, on your episode where he's like, competition eats the profits away. Right. I think the space has just become so much more competitive. So he, he made a great point, which is that competition is anti-capitalist. Yeah. Because you really want to be a monopoly yeah. and get all the profits. And that's, you want, capitalism is about the accumulation of capital. Yeah. Not competition where capital sort of gets dispersed among all these people who are semi-equal. But there's another point related to that that I, that I want to ask you about, which I don't know if he addresses or not. If I write a book and someone else writes a book and we're about the same category, and let's say I'm 20% better, that's not good enough. No. Because no, the average reader doesn't know 20% better or 20% worse. You have to be like sort of five times better. Well, what I think about is, and I do this with every one of my books, you start with an idea or a topic and you're like, that's a good topic. Someone should write a book about that. But then you have to do this extra thing where you go, what's the book that only I could write about this topic? And then that's how you get a competitive edge. So, so okay, let's let's. Uh, so, so I'm going to do two things. One is I'm going to take an example yeah. from your book, but the next thing is I want to relate this to the listener who's not necessarily writing books. Yeah. So, so ego is the enemy. Yeah. I feel like uh, that's a broad topic. How ego kind of hurts careers. And if if I was anybody, I could do basic research on the psychology of ego, on the history of famous leaders who were brought down by ego, and, and so on. So, yeah. so I feel other people could write that book. Now, you wrote it in a particular way, but but go ahead, take that as an example. Well, I'll take the book before that, Obstacle is the Way, because I thought about it more explicitly there. Um, lots of Look, there's the original Stoics who sold books for thousands of years. Then there's a number of books about Stoicism that were popular. Um, and so it was like, I, I sold a book about Stoicism. I knew that it's a niche. It's what I'm, but what's the book that only I would write about Stoicism? Or what's the book that would fill a unique need about? And so I said, I want to take the wisdom of Stoicism and illustrate it via stories for people who are not interested in stoicism. That's the idea, right? So, I so see. everyone else is like what I, I, I read all the so books. Everyone else is writing history, like William Irvine's yes. book is the history of stoicism. Well, like, like and I, I know William, and I think his book is good, but the best parts of his book is when he's quoting the Stoics, right? Like mm -hmm. it, for from all the books about stoicism, the best part is when they're quoting the Stoics. So it's like, well, then I would just tell people to read the original. So it's like, so... If I can't do, uh, if you're only doing a 20% better job, right? And so I was like, I don't want to do that. I want to write a book that is in its own new category. So I'm saying this is a book of Stoicism or, you know, there's a book featuring Stoicism, let's so, say. So, and it's great. So then it's like, because you've developed these very particular research skills by working with guys like Robert yes. Green on, on... He taught me how to tell stories. Yeah, yeah. He, Robert Green's the master, and he wrote the book Mastery. Yeah. But he's the master of taking a very complicated concept and then researching essentially a thousand stories that, you know, uh, demonstrate this concept and then writing a book about it. Yes. And I see you do that in your books in slightly different way than he does. He's he his books are dense with stories and yours are a little bit more explanatory. Yeah. But but that's what you did for stoicism. Yeah, so uh, that I that's I 
at first I was like, how do I be better than all these books? Or how do I, how am I going to get the people who read his book to read my book? And then as I was, and this is all before I really wrote a word, you know, these are the conversations and thinking you're doing. And then it's like, as soon as I figure that out, all my worry about competition went away because there is no competition. I invented a category. I see. So you, so you, again, you take Peter Thiel's entrepreneurship advice Mm -hmm. and kind of, make your niche smaller and smaller until you're the monopoly. Yes. And then it kind of doesn't matter if you sell a million copies or a thousand, you know the people you're going to hit are going to be vastly moved. They're the right people. They're going to be vastly moved by your sto- by the, your set of stories. And they're going to recommend it to similar people like them. It becomes and then, shareable. And it becomes, which is how we started. Yeah. How do you make something that can be spread to other people after you've moved on to your next project? So now, so now let's relate this to the the commuter into Procter and Gamble, because uh, I think this is related to, you know, the concept of creativity is related to the concept of having a vision at the workplace, whether you're an employee or an entrepreneur. You know, how do you, how do they think about this in terms of their job or entrepreneurship or being an employee or so on? Well, I, I guess it would be the same the same ideas. Like, what is it that only you can do? Like, I mean. Um, Robert Greene says this, he's like, no one has your unique combination of DNA and circumstances and when you were born and what, no one, you're a completely unique being and individual that will never exist again on this planet. Why would you then go make yourself as much like everyone else as possible? You know, so it's like, what can only you do at Procter & Gamble? That's where the big gains are going to be. Okay, so, but we're trained for 30 years by a system that that standardizes us for for a reason, because, you know, the Industrial Revolution, everybody kind of had to be, you know, kind of, be play a role on the assembly line yeah. and so we had to be standardized or or the the rise of the the british empire everyone had to be interchangeable i had to take a, a clerk up in india and put him in canada yeah. and do the same job yeah. so we had that whole education system had to kind of move into this standardization mm-hmm. which we still which carries over to the present day sure. so how do now we unlearn so that we can be so we can discover what our differences are well maybe i think there's a fear thing too right where it's like people think like if i don't fit into a a very well designed like job or niche i won't be hireable but it, actually what i think you want to think about is or what you what's freeing is like if i create value for the organization if i create um obvious value to the organization they will find a place for me like i've even found this when when like people are really scared about making their job irrelevant right Actually, that's what you should be doing because then you can get, then you move up to another, like you should be trying to make your job or your role irrelevant because what you're actually proving is like, oh, this person knows how to do things and they know when something is working and then they're able to come up with the next thing. I, I love that trying to make your job irrelevant. You know, it reminds me of when I had an agency, uh, my most successful selling technique was actually recommending my competitors. Yeah. So people would come in and show me what their things are. And there was nothing I was ever the best at. So I would describe to them, well, for this thing, these guys yeah. are the best. For this thing, these guys are the best. And then you but, would manage it all? Well, well, actually, then I would just get hired to do it all. Right. Because I was suddenly the source and sure. I had integrity and, and mm-hmm. so on. So, so when you're trying to make your job irrelevant, that's almost kind of, I feel, it's almost like this feeling you get inside, like that's me being the hero. Yeah. Because it's being like very honest, point. like I'm sacrificing to, 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 
I'm taking this risk and I'm sacrificing, but it's out of integrity. Well, think about it. Like you're a boss and so if you're a boss and an employee comes (laughs) No, an employee comes to you and they're like, okay, I know my job was like to run this marketing department, but um, over the last six months, you know, I've automated this and this, you know, I've, I've hired this person who's incredibly talented. They're handling this, you know, sales are up 8% or, you know, you go through all this thing and you're like, you know, I don't have that much to do. Your boss isn't, your boss doesn't go to their boss and go like, well, how do we get rid of James? You know, they go like, James is fucking killing it. What thing can we put him on instead? You know what I mean? That's how you work through or up or an organization. Like nobody goes, oh, your book was so amazing, Ryan. We don't need any more books from you. They go, what are you writing about next? So, okay, so I'm the employee again and I hear what you're saying and how do I build the skill set to think this way, to start coming up with ideas or creativity to, to, to make my job relevant? Yeah, um, I mean, this is where I'm putting you have on to, the spot. Yeah, this is where you have to take control of your own education. No one is going to teach you how to do the like. So you, you have to, you have to, you have to basically go out there and and study and read and learn the things that that the people around yeah. you are not learning. And and I don't think people realize like like how basic this is, right? Like like think about your if you have a job, think about that job, and then go like, what percentage of your colleagues do you think are reading books even about that job like what do you think what do you think the the rate of continual education is in your space it's got to be like even in a great industry where there's a huge profit incentive probably like 10 percent. you know like what percentage of wall street traders are studying psychology or studying you know the history of the markets or studying this or that and what percentage are just sort of going by their own intuition or gut or what they learned early on in their career? That's that's a real interesting example. Like the so so I used to run a hedge fund and I used to work for a hedge fund. And the hedge fund manager I worked for, he was always reading these books that had nothing to do with finance. And he would tell me, Don't read books about yeah. finance or at least mix it up a little bit. So he would read a book about how trees grow. And then he'd write this extensive uh essay about how the science of how trees grow is related to how the markets grow. Mm-hmm. And he would encourage people to then write software kind of trying to unlock patterns in the markets that were similar to how trees grow. Well, I think that's the next level. I'm just saying like what, even at the most basic level, what percentage of people have are care about the, like are even learning about the thing they're doing every day? I would say it's very low. And then what, what the next level is what, people are just pursuing self-education in general. So like if you're a stock market trader, you're studying, you know, psychology and biology and all these other larger forces that intersect ultimately with what you do. It's like got to be 0%, you know. Right. So people I don't think people understand like in a weird way what a like what a profoundly like rebellious provocative act it is just to like pick up a book and read. Like you know what I mean like like I'll give you an example. So I live in Austin. I I since I work from home, I'll go out. Like I read whenever I'm eating. Let's let's say I'm sitting at a restaurant. I'm eating, and I I guess look a a, a little bit of this probably because I'm young. But the most common question I get asked is like, "Are you reading that for school?" You know, like people go, "Are you reading that for school?" Like the idea that an adult would be sitting in a restaurant reading a book in the middle of the day is like baffling to people. Well, it's interesting to me because. 
and and by the way, I highly encourage people to subscribe to your uh, reading list every month because I always read the books you recommend every month. Like they're oh. great books, and I know you've you've thought carefully about them. But when you and and I don't mean to make this an advertising about reading, but when you read a book, you're basically not only do you get to live your own life, but now I'm getting within let's say a five or six hour period the entire heavily curated thoughts of someone else's entire life. Yes. And what an amazing thing. It's like I'm the Borg absorbing all these lives. Yeah. There's a quote I have in Ego from Bismarck where he says, like, any fool can learn by experience. I prefer to learn by the experiences of others. Like, hmm. wouldn't you rat, like, why are you going around doing it all by trial and error? W which is why, like, a lot of people sort of wear, there's this kind of uh, whole failure pornography, which, which I guess, um, you know, I help spread a little bit, but uh, there's this idea that failure is like this badge of honor because we all experience adversity and, and failure, but you don't really have to fail miserably to succeed. You can learn from the failures of others. Well, I, I, I was just going to say that. I feel like I don't need to go bankrupt because I've read many of your articles about the time. <laughs> right. Do you know what I mean? Like, like it, it's you've, like, I've never made the kind of money that you've made, and I don't know if I ever will, but like, it's helpful. Like I've read an article where you've talked about what it's like to blow through $15 million, let's say. So, and basically what you say is that it's really easy to do. It doesn't make you feel that good. And uh, it's totally avoidable. And it doesn't necessarily make you succeed because you get yes. depressed for many years afterwards. <laughs> right, That's right. years of your so, life. So now it's like, it, it's helpful to me that now, you know, it, like think about all how difficult it, it is to make $15 million. So now I, it's like, I don't need to go do the things in some way. I don't need to go do the things to make $15 million. Then I don't need to make all the mistakes that you made about that $15 million to end up in basically the same spot. Right. And so I, People, but people don't avail themselves of that. That wisdom that's in that article was very hard won, right? Like, just imagine the pain that you went through, not only at the moment, but then afterwards, and then in thinking about it, and then all the pain that went into learning how to write and communicate effectively to create that article. That's like thousands of hours, some of it under extreme duress. And because you put that there, I now, I and thousands of other people do not need to go through that. So now l let me ask you, like, uh, I'm going to, this is going to be like a therapy session for okay. me. So, so I've been doing this style of writing for, let's say, seven years. I've known you for about five or six years. Uh, uh, you've seen many of these types of articles. I write almost too many articles about blowing all my money and failure and all these things. And I and I write an article a day. So yeah. So let's say I've written like twenty five hundred articles. Yeah. You know about these topics. You can't. At some point, you you you've bled out all the blood mm -hmm. in your body. And what are you know? And I've written a book called Reinvent Yourself. Not because I'm necessarily such an expert at reinventing myself, although I've had to do it many times, but it's partly because I'm trying to figure out what is my next reinvention. And to some extent, I have a business to feed. I have things to do. I enjoy doing this podcast. I enjoy writing. I enjoy the validation on the writing. But now there's a huge number of people who have entered this field that I was kind of yeah. a, a sort of alone in for a while. Uh, what what do you see as how should I be thinking about my own reinvention? And I, here I am asking this. I'm the author of the book, Reinvent Yourself. No, no. Well, first off, I love the the 
I'm like, I love pursuing artistic projects that are mostly selfishly motivated. Like, you know, it's like a chance for you to do something that you like to do. So I, I do that myself, but I, I'm going through the same thing. Like my, you, you realize you can get on a track and you could be the person who writes, you know, this song over and over again. And, and then how many artists actually get, you know, at some point, like, a, let's just take a musical band. Let's say they have five yeah. years worth of music in them before they have to really reinvent. Uh, yeah. Or else it's like, oh, it's, oh, God, they're playing. They made just, they just made the same album again. I'm not going to listen to it. Well, and look, there are also dangers. I mean, like, I'm a huge Metallica fan. They tried to reinvent the wheel on this album called St. Anger, and it's terrible. It's like the worst album. It's, you know, like, you can reinvent yourself in a bad way, too, because you get rid of the stuff that's working. So I don't think it's just, like, just doing it out of whole cloth for no reason. But, like, the book that I'm working on right now, I can't really talk about it, but it's, like, kicking my ass. Like, it's, I don't know if it's good or not. Um, it's been really hard. I wake up and I don't really want to work on it. Like, I always want to... I have other easier things that I want to do. I sort of feel like that's kind of a sign that maybe you shouldn't do it or you should pivot it somehow. I, I've i thought that, but to me, it's it's not that I don't want to... It's not like I hate it. It's that, like, I'm obsessed with it, but whenever I sit down to write, it's it's not easy. Do you know? So my point is, that's proofed... I didn't get to where I got doing easy things. So writing shouldn't be easy. Like there's a Thomas Mann quote, a writer is someone to whom writing does not come easily. Mm. It's supposed to be hard. And so you have to keep moving the goalpost to keep it hard or, or it gets... The Daily Stoke was the easiest book that I ever wrote. It's the longest book. It's the easiest book because it was 365 back-to-back meditations with no connection between the two. I could write... I could write one of those books every three months. Yeah. But that would be easy. Right. And I don't, so I don't want to do that. You know, and it's interesting with The Daily Stoic, which is your last book that's been published, uh, it's like, it's like you say, 360 is like the calendar. And every day there's a new kind of your interpretation of, of stoicism that you could read and, and pull wisdom from. And I sort of was surprised. Um, it, it was a natural book for you to write. So I wasn't surprised about that. But I was surprised. It's actually been selling very well, and I see it yeah. quoted quite a bit. And it's a it's a great book. Uh, uh, those books to me sort of don't seem like they will sell well, but people are getting a lot of value out of this, yeah. and and it's been doing well. Well, my agent did uh, sort of not invented that category, but my agent did a lot of those books when he was a publisher. He did like the Daily Drucker, which is a great mm. book. It's like a piece of wisdom from Peter Drucker every day. So he was like very confident. I was like. I don't read one of these books. Like I don't know who would, and we ended up doing it. It was a lot of fun, and uh, it sold really well. And and I I now read a couple different daily books every day because <laughs> I like the genre now. But you should do a, a your next reading list should be the of, daily all daily <laughs> books. That would be a great idea. Yeah. Um, but but uh, it the, I think the point though is like it's not supposed to be easy. You know, like it, at the gym you. Or if you're riding a bike, you crank up the resistance, right? It's supposed to get harder. Like I run every day. I, at this point, I could I could get up right now in these clothes and run seven or eight miles, and it not be a big deal. So I have you have to keep moving the goalpost, or it's not training anymore. But, it's just routine. But at some point, there's a fine line between pushing yourself past resistance and 
your body and mind telling you, no, yes. this is not what you should be doing no, right abso- now. Absolutely. It's like what you said, you were unhappy doing agency stuff. Mm-hmm. It's not like you should push through that unhappiness. You back off from it to find your ideal day. I watched this documentary about the band Rush. Do you know the band Rush? Yeah, yeah. Uh, they were saying, I think it was on 2112, they, at the end of it, they were like, that album was too hard. Like it was too, they were like, it would take 12 days to do like one guitar part perfectly because it was, and they were like, okay, we're not going to get any more technically difficult from this point forward. So there is a line, I think. And I think their music actually got really, is continued to get good. It just went in a different direction. So you have to, you do have to put in some constraints. Like you can't, you can't go like, I usually work 12 hours a day. I'm ramping it up to 13 because then it inevitably goes to 14 and you know there has to be lines but i'm just saying like you have you can't you if you're doing the same thing over and over again you're not going to get any better and so you have to the constraints are helpful and they channel the energy in a good direction so i'm just it's just validating to me i like and i could be end up being wrong that i've picked something that is hard and you and you're also giving yourself permission to disappear for a while while you write something because the idea is if you write something that's really great even if you've disappeared for a while from kind of like the public validation that you like uh if you write something great it's going to come back again yeah no that's a good point um that was a that was a hard thing for me ego wise i mean we talked about this earlier was like for instance the decision to like start saying no to like press I, and I'm not like some recluse. I say yes to lots of things. You're a little reclusive, but no. But I'm not like a I'm not like a, a extreme recluse, right? Like some people I know. So, I, but it was like like I would get the other night. I got like um, some. It was like eight at night, and it was like some national radio program in Australia wanted me to come on and talk about something, and they were like, "It's right now. It's some news story," and I I saw it, and I was like, two years ago, I would have like canceled dinner with my wife and done this thing because like I say yes to everything. That's who I am. And then it was like, I just was sort of doing the math. I was like, look, it's a last minute request. How many books am I going to sell in Australia? Like, I don't even care about this thing that they want me to talk about. I'm going to say no. And, and giving yourself permission to like, to not, to giving yourself permission and having the confidence to say, saying no to this is not going to like haunt me the rest of my career, which I think that power was pushing me forward for a long time. I, I think for me too, I used to think, I used to have this philosophy, anytime anybody asked me to go on TV, yeah. I would drop everything I was doing, including dinner with wife yeah. and family, and I would just do it. I would say yes and then figure out how I would go to the store and buy a suit right. and go yeah. to the studio and just show up and do it. And then... I realize this just feels miserable. Like right. I and again there's that kind of distinction like yes, yeah, sometimes things are hard and you want to break through it, but I was feeling like I literally had to like shower after doing yeah. it. And there's a different type of misery. Yeah. And but now I'm starting to feel that way like I can't like like at some point like we were talking about earlier, you can't do the same thing all the time. You kind of have to reinvent even in ways that kind of take you out of action or or is not as popular as your old things. I don't but, know. I'm kind of going through my own reinvention. Yeah. The, I think the law of diminishing returns is a, probably an under... It's very real in economics and business, but I think on a personal level, 
people have trouble incorporating it into their life. Like in what way? Well, like just understanding that like it's like the first 10 television interviews you you do have a big impact on your career. And then 10 through 20 less and 20 through 30, you know? And so starting to realize when the diminishing returns have set in and then having being able to say no. So you you know, it's funny because you're a new father, obviously. Congratulations, which Thank I you. which I haven't yet said to you. But uh uh the reason I bring it up is you see this law of diminishing returns in the eyes of a child. Mm -hmm. So the very first time I went on TV, I get home and my then, um, I guess, five or six, my then six-year-old, she's like looking at me. She had just seen me on like the TV where Dora the Explorer is and then Daddy is. And she was like, I was like a god or something. I could see it in her eyes. And now, of course, if I go on TV, she's like, ugh, whatever. Like, you know, her friends might tell her, but she doesn't even know if I am or not. So so, so the law of diminishing returns is definitely there in the eyes of of someone who's easily impressed. Oh, that's a a great proxy. Yeah, And, and just thinking like, hey, like, it's it's the same true with money is like how much more money do you need to be ha- like that that was the other thing I realized with the agency thing it's like I'm not like I don't want people to think like I've taken some vow of poverty and I live off the land and tech like I'm I make way more money than I ever thought I would make I and so I don't it's not like some cur- it's not some ba- it's not some brave decision to go like you know what I'm happy on a half a million dollars a year. That's still a shit ton of money compared to most people. But it's going, oh, wait, the difference between half a million and a million and a half and 10 million is, it's like you're still eating in the same restaurants. You're just flying economy instead of private. It's like, it's not, it's still the miracle of flight. Yeah. So, so uh, I think this is, again, stuff I wish... I don't know. I wish I had realized much younger, but now I'm sort of realizing now. <laughs> but nobody but, talks about. I think a big part of it is nobody talks about these things. Like I've never read a book about the only books that I've ever read about this topic are like two thousand years old. Do you know what I mean? Like the only time you really get people, it's only the philosophers that talk about these questions, which to me is why philosophy is so relevant and important. And yet, and yet, it's been relegated to kind of. Um, sort of the easy out majors in yeah. colleges and no one cares about them. And I think that's the benefits of, of your last two, three books, Obstacles the Way, Ego is the Enemy, and The Daily Stoic, is that uh, you kind of bring it into a modern context. Yeah. And, and and it's important. So not important necessarily from a spiritual aspect, aspect, like people have their spiritual outlets, like their religion, but philosophy doesn't need to uh, replace religion. No, not at all. I, I mean, I think... In, but if you're not religious, philosophy becomes much more essential. Because if you're religious, a lot of these questions are answered for you, right? Like, why should you be a good person? Or, like, what what is the meaning of life? Or, you know, what is good or bad? You know, all these questions are answered for you. So if you're not religious, and I'm not religious, and, I, you know, even I think, you know, Jews have an advantage in their sort of culturally, their subcultural religion, but, um, and, and, and other nationalities maybe have this, um, but um, Jews have a lot more money too. No. <laughs> Sorry, I could say that because I'm Jewish. It's not. It's not true. Uh, famous studies on Jewish poverty as well. <laughs> but, but uh, I think I think if you're not religious, you have to find. You can't just be spiritual. You know, you have to. You have to figure these. 
you have to do the work to answer these questions on your own and find some other source for them. Because how do the 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 essential the essent I didn't say this earlier, but the essential question that Stoicism and I think all ancient philosophy was designed to answer was this: how to live? What is the good life? That's the question of the philosophers. And then you're supposed to figure out an answer. So, okay, tell me what I should do next. <laughs> Which, with your career, or with your life, or what? Yeah, anything. Uh, I, oh man, I don't. I don't think I have an answer to that. Uh, I would say also the happiest decision I ever made was leaving New York City um, because uh, I just don't feel like it's conducive to human flourishing. Um, there's too many loud noises. It's too busy. Friction in all aspects of life is way too high. So true. I could tell you. It's much harder to read in yeah. New York because of the noise, and it's much harder to write in New York because of the distractions. Totally. So I think I think moving is a is a big one uh, for me. Um, I would say I'm thinking of writing fiction, but so, I'm but I'm afraid of the leap because you, you, my, I find that big, I can't write nonfiction and fiction on the same day because it requires too much of a mind change. My leap, or I'm I'm scared of the leap, and generally when friends tell me. They're starting to write fiction. I'm, I get worried. Right. Um, okay. Tell me why. Why do you get worried? Because it's you. It's never very good. Honestly, I mean, yeah. it's mostly it's really bad. most fiction's bad. <laughs> most fiction's really bad, and mostly they're writing it because they're trying to get away with from something rather than like face that thing. Uh, the only fiction that I found is successful in Friends and, and like Kamal did it, where it's like sort of an allegory or it's very you're just fictionalizing real events because you can't talk about them. Well, basically, and it just depends on the, the decade, but like essentially Bukowski's first four books were nonfiction, yeah. but he just called them novels. And John John Fonte is the same way. He's the main character and all that. So I think I would, there's that. Um, I, I would, I wonder for you, I'll give you a, so I like, I love exercise and working out and I weirdly a couple, um, Years ago, I figured out that it was actually harder for me to make the decision not to go running. That took more willpower than the decision to go running because I built it up into a habit, into a routine. So for you, I wonder if the resist your face. You don't face the resistance in should I wake up and write today. You your resistance is should I not publish today and try to work on something that might have a longer timeline. So I wonder yeah. for you if pushing yourself might be I'm going to write once a week and then I'm going to work on something I'm going to I'm going to work on something in secret that's going to come out in a big way in six like I wonder if you tried to f- switch it up and you worked on things with longer leads if that would push you as a writer. That's very interesting. I'm going to think about that because I do have this fear of like I think Part of the thing that I really value about my work is that I'm prolific. Yeah. Like I put out so much stuff, so many articles, books, podcasts that I'm I'm happy to be known as prolific. Yeah. I don't necessarily but but sometimes being prolific is really hard in this anti-creative way. Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily like you say there's a law of diminishing returns and that doesn't necessarily uh, increase my own happiness or increase my value. Well, sometimes being prolific can be lazy because you're you're not um, holding yourself to as high a standard, right? Because you're having to get, like, I guess, what if you did like a Louis C.K. thing where you said like, all new, you're not allowed, for six months, you're not allowed to write anything about the past or something, yeah. right? So it's like you had to, if you had to invent a new hour from scratch, 
how creative would that force you to be? Well, I th- I think about Louis C.K. stuff a lot. I mean, he kind of he kind of changed comedy by putting down the the stake and saying, "I'm going to have an hour of new material every. I'm going to start from scratch every year on yeah. January first. And I think that's really difficult. No other comedian, I think, has really done it. Uh, right. So uh, that that is a challenge for me, and I think about that a lot. You know what's interesting? Um, like I think about comedy a lot in general because I think it's uh, those are sort of modern philosophers. Yeah. And uh, Larry David, I've been really studying a lot lately because you think about it, this is a guy who was so abrasive and obnoxious. Nobody wanted to work with him, but he ended up creating two of the best shows on television ever: mm-hmm. Seinfeld and then Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yeah. And in doing so. You still see him as this abrasive, obnoxious guy, but when you think about the arc of his career, and this relates to who is in your scene a little bit, he really created the careers of so many people, like Elaine, George, yeah. and Michael, you know, Kramer, Michael Richards, and then all the actors on Curb Your Enthusiasm, all the writers who who he he fired a new set of writers every season on yeah. on, on Seinfeld. He's just really uplifted so many people, and he de- redefined the genre of television. So he can't actually be that abrasive and hard to work with. Right, no, he must be a great guy, actually. I think Lena Dunham doesn't get credit in that sense. Like, I'm not a big... uh, I didn't really like girls that much. Uh, It just didn't... It didn't speak to me that much. I thought it's... uh, But... and, And I don't like a lot of her political stuff. But she can't possibly be the person that she plays in this show... Or she wouldn't be a twenty-something who has a show on HBO. Right. Do you know what I mean? And people are really bad at seeing that. Like, what to? She is the CEO of a television show on one of the most, you know, sort of, at, at the one of the highest levels of all of television, and she's like my age. Like that's crazy. She can't possibly be the millennial stereotype that people want to make her into being, or the sh- the show would not exist. Whether it's good or not is irrelevant to the discussion. Like she can't be that person and do what she's done. So and again, I think the same with Larry David. So again, it's a matter of kind of like uplifting your scene uh, and reinvention. Like she, you know, is constantly trying to figure out what's the next level she could take the show, just like Larry David was. I think yeah. those are like interesting examples. Yeah, yeah, and it's just uh, also if you find that. I mean, if Larry David had tried to force himself into some other environment, it wouldn't have worked. So it's like you do have to find what's what works for you. And he, he stuck to his integrity. Yeah. Right? He stuck to making a show about nothing. Yeah. And to his credit, I mean, Seinfeld wasn't a hit. It wasn't in the top 20, for instance, until the fourth season. Third season, I think it was ranked like 40th. Yeah. And it would have been canceled in today's world, but obviously he kept going. He kept he stuck to his core. Right. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and and he must have realized on the second show, look, these are... Because he, he didn't do Curb Your Enthusiasm for the money, right? Um, so he must have said, these are the terms with which I'm happy doing a television show. And like he, they haven't come... It's been like three or four years since they've done another season. 2011, right? it's been six years. Yeah. And they're going to do a season this year. And But it must have been only the terms that Larry David is happy doing it with. And by the way, the writers and producers that he works with were also the writers and producers on Seinfeld in his last yes. season or two. And Chris Albrecht, who was the CEO of HBO when Curb started, was 20 years earlier 
the guy running, the club manager at Catch a Rising Star Comedy Club, Whoa. who first picked Larry David to come on stage. Wow. So this is another thing of kind of respect the scene. Yes. These are the people you grow up with. Like the, the, the guy who was the gatekeeper at a small club in New York became the CEO of HBO. And Larry David, who was the worst stand-up around, became the writer of Seinfeld and Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yeah, to no, totally. I, I, I think people don't think long term enough in that sense. Like, you're only thinking it's like, oh, this person's beating me right now. You know, you don't think, well, how you can support each other, yeah, and help each other, right? You don't think, yeah, and and I love listening to comedy podcasts about that because it's like, you know, Louis C.K. was just some comedian for like 20 years, and he wrote on a lot, and now he's you know, the biggest comedian in the world or whatever. You you don't know how people's careers are going to go. And so I think one of the things to practice too is like, can you actually be happy for other people having success? Because it doesn't take away from you in any way. That's a... No, that's it, it actually helps you. Of course. It, it's, uh, it's an incredibly helpful thing. It's probably the most helpful thing because the urge is to be unhappy for other people's success mm -hmm. when... In fact, the most beneficial thing is to do the opposite of that, to be the unique person who is encouraging other people's success. Yeah, and like with books, like uh, if somebody's book sells a million copies, mine don't sell any fewer. If anything, it is making more people read. Right. So with that said, Ryan, thanks so much for coming on for the me. podcast. I can't wait actually for your next book, Perennial Seller, because you just gave me a galley copy of it. I haven't read it yet. When I read it and before it cut, when's it coming out? Uh, July. So before July, we're going to have to do another podcast because okay. this is my favorite topic right now. It's the perennial too. seller. Okay. So, and I'm sure you must have been fascinated. I can't wait to read it. But the, the Daily Stoic, you've, you've changed my mind on Stoicism. So okay. The Daily Stoic, I highly encourage people to read, plus your other books on Stoicism, plus your email, The Daily Stoic, plus your, your, your reading list, uh, which I always read. So I'm always happy when you're on the, the podcast. I value your advice a lot. And thanks once again. Thanks for having me. You know, I just want to say thank you to everyone listening to this. Please take a moment to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It will only take a second, but it will help other people discover the podcast and it will really show people in general that this is a quality show and that it's worth listening to. You can also check out the show notes at jamesaltitude.com slash podcast. Also, if you want to get my blog updates and other updates that I do, sign up for the newsletter at jamesaltitude.com. Thanks so much for joining me on the journey of this podcast.